Welcome People First Leaders. This is a special episode of the Leading People First podcast, where you get to listen in on the honest and uncomfortable conversations from our latest Leaders of Equity, Allyship, and Diversity event. If you are ready to take a stand and take action against hate, violence, inequity, and injustice in our society, you are not alone. The Leaders for Equity, Allyship, and Diversity host weekly events to allow leaders to come together, discuss, learn, share, and activate to make a difference in the world. Listen to the end to get more information on how you can join us at our next live event. In this episode, we brought together a group of panelists to discuss their reactions to the verdict of the policeman who murdered George Floyd and what we need to do to reimagine reform because of the police violence across America. So get ready to come together and lead, and let's dive on in. So welcome to LEAD. This is Leaders for Equity, Allyship, and Diversity. I am Yvonne Alston. I am one of the founding members of LEAD. Tonight, I'm joined by Chris Lynn, another LEAD founder. If you want to wave your hand, Chris, so everybody knows. Yeah. And Sarah Phelps is off tonight. So uh, you won't see her, but um, she is here always in spirit. So tonight, we are talking about a very timely and sensitive topic. Reimagining Reform, Police Violence Across America. For those who have uh, participated in lead discussions before, you know we're not afraid to tackle the tough topics. And this one felt quite necessary given the state of our nation. So just a couple of house rules for those of you that are new to the platform. We uh, ask for civility to guide our interactions and our conversation. Please respect and embrace the difference of our opinions and perspectives. And let's create a safe space for vulnerability and transparency, which requires empathy and discretion. Um, I also want to make everyone aware that Chris Lynn is going to be uh, manning the chat tonight. So if you have any questions, please drop them into the chat um, and we will get to them as soon as possible. Also note that this session is being recorded for those who are unable to attend. So uh, if uh, you know, you'd like to revisit this conversation in the future, it will be available uh, in a couple of days via Chris's Leading People First podcast. So without further ado, I'd like to uh, introduce tonight's panelists. So Laron Barton is a writer and speaker from Kansas City who now lives in the San Francisco, California area. He has authored two books, uh, Straight Dope, a 360-degree look into American drug culture, and All We Really Need is Love, stories of dating, relationships, heartbreak, and marriage. Laron has also published essays and articles about race, mass incarceration, politics, and dating. He has appeared in Al Jazeera, TEDx, Salon, Your Tango, 7x7, Black Enterprise, The Good Men Project, Speakers Who Dare, and Rancontour. Um, Okay, I don't know what he hasn't done. Um, Laurent believes that as a writer, one of his responsibilities is to create, be honest, and encourage others to do so. Uh, Eli Rigatuso is an Omaha native who identifies as a queer transmasculine two-spirit of the Menominee Nation. He is a local activist and multimedia artist and also senior video producer director at Bellevue University. He is an outspoken advocate for the transgender community and was instrumental in founding Heartland Pride, a local 501c3 organization that produces annual pride celebrations to this very day. Uh, Eli believes visibility is key and frequently blogs about his personal experiences and insights and shares uplifting stories of resilience and authenticity about the LGBTQ plus community. Thank you, Eli, for being here. Thank you, Laron. And we have Kenny G, the actual family to me. Kenny Green is a certified public accountant and has dedicated his work to social and environmental justice. He has conducted trainings and consulted with the Stanford, Connecticut Police Department to promote positive engagement with communities of color. He serves as the co-chair of the Law Enforcement Action Committee for Stanford Stands Against Racism. He is also on the boards of the Jackie Robinson Park of Fame and the Carroll Family Foundation founded by NBA basketball star, Demir Carroll. So welcome, 
Welcome, welcome to this amazing all-star panel. Round of applause for all of you. Thank you for participating. Uh, Kenny, if you wanna come off mute, we're gonna get started. All right, so we're gonna jump right into it. Um, we obviously, first and foremost, we have to address the Chauvin verdict. Um, if you wanna go around, I'm just gonna start with uh, top of the Brady Bunch <laughs> screen with Laron. Tell us about your feelings leading up to and, and then your reaction to the verdict. Um, well, thank you for the introduction. Um, hello, Eli, Kenny, and, and everyone. Uh, Chris, you know, for me, um, so I tried to avoid getting, getting sucked into the trial. I, I just felt like that, you know, for one, like I never watched the video. Um, I think those videos, uh, they're like snuff films, you know, I, I, and they're similar to the... Um, to the postcards that white folks would take of lynched people. So I don't feel that watching that video, looking at the photo would, would benefit me mentally. You know, I, I mean, like, like I said, I tried not to get sucked in, but that trial seeped into every facet of our, of our lives. And for me, it was the most anticipated trial, the most anticipated decision since the Trayvon Martin verdict. Mm. Um, when I found, for, so for me, when unfortunately when Dante Wright was was killed, I said, okay, this is there's no way that that they're going to let Chauvin walk because I mean there was just too much stuff happening within that within that same area. Like it was emblematic of of just systemic racism uh, within the uh, Minneapolis Minnesota area. When Chauvin was found guilty on on all, on all accounts, I I remember I just. I just took a took a deep breath and I was like, wow, like, you know, I, I couldn't believe it. You know, I'm, I'm still actually in disbelief now. Um, I felt um, I felt really good, to be honest with you. Like, you know, this is a rarity well, for, for black folks. I mean, seeing that police have been killing black people unarmed since the slave patrols for this to actually happen and for a police officer to be found guilty on all three counts, not just one count guilty, one count not guilty, but just for a pure sweep, I just felt like it was accountability. Like, I don't think that it's it's justice, but but it's not because Mr. Floyd can never be brought back, right? Like his family will always live with that hold in their in their heart. Mr. Floyd has a, has a daughter that he left behind. But I believe that um, at this moment, you know, the scales of justice got something right. I don't know if it's a one-off, I don't know if it's an aberration, but for now, you know, and I, I, I think I can speak for every black person uh, uh, to, to today, we're, we're, uh, we're breathing a little easier right now. Okay. What say you, Kenny Green? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you know, th those are great points, LeBron, and, and, and I do agree really on the onset that there is a father missing, there's a daughter without a father. So that's, that's the thing to remember in this whole situation. So there, you know, with this trial, there really isn't any winners. And, and when I look at it, you know, I, I was on edge, honestly, um, the entire time because you weren't, you wasn't really sure. Was it, was it gonna be a guilty verdict? And after it came down guilty, I started thinking and remembering that, well, that's really the problem with our society, that we all were on edge. After there was a videotape, there was a mountain of evidence, um, everything you would think you would need to just say, this is case closed, we still, as a society, was on edge. And, and, and that's really the issue at the core is that we have to resolve that. Why were we there? And we were there because of the historical um, context here where you've had so many cops not being prosecuted for this. And so that was really what had us as society saying, well, it might not be true. And so what did we get from this? We really got basic accountability and, and, and not really justice. And we're, we're, we're going to move towards justice. And that's what we, why we have to keep our foot on the gas, but we got basic accountability. And how I look at this trial, if you have body cam footage, if you have someone taking a video, if it's broad daylight, if it's all these things, then you can get a conviction. But we want to start having convictions when you don't have all of that. 
when it when it's just uh, you know maybe someone's word against uh, um, an officer? Do you have a shot um, at, at justice then or accountability um, then? So so I, from this, I, I still I learned a lot, um, and it it really helps focus me and what we're doing here in Stanford to to get a community review board to to help with this how we should approach it. So it was a learning experience for me, but I'm also like Ron, at least breathing a sigh of relief because if it had not come guilty, I expected towns and cities to burn. I expected it to be utter chaos if it was not this way. So I'm happy that did not happen and that we can continue to work. Yeah, thank you. Go ahead, Eli. And I just absolutely echo the sentiments of both Laron and Kenny. Um, the trauma porn that Laron talks about is so real. Like we see that anytime someone who carries multi-marginalized identities, um, when something happens with this r repetitive body cam footage, like hours after uh, the verdict, we see yet another black woman murdered. Um, not even hours, I think it was 30 minutes later is what Yvonne was saying earlier. And so turning the television on, that's, that's all we see. And for black, brown and indigenous folks, but mostly for black folks, black men, black women, black trans women. It's one of the reasons why I feel like um, I was invited into this conversation is to speak on behalf of folks who are multi-marginalized and the ways in which we vilify them because a lot of the black trans women that you see are trans women who are engaging in work that is not seen as okay. Mm. And then not taking into consideration that they're, they're not hireable. There's no support for these women. And so they have to do this work in order to survive. And then, and then all of the other things, it's like, there's just all of these things, one thing stacked on top, another on top of another. Um, I agree wholeheartedly with Kenny in the fact that this does bring justice, but it definitely doesn't make up for the decades hmm. of harm. You know, I was not optimistic that we were going to get a guilty ver verdict. I did. I was like very careful to not watch too much of the news, to just wait for it to happen and then see all hell break loose again. Mm -hmm. And I would have been all for it. I, I have said numerous times, burn it all down. Yes, metaphorically. And also sometimes, you know what? No, just go ahead and burn it all down. And I and it comes from like this indigenous part of me that says, like, in order for something beautiful to grow in return, we do have to clear the field and burn it all down. I wrote something about that not too long ago on my blog. Um, and so this is the piece. It's this little tiny thing that maybe prevents lots more protests, but we can't we can't just like settle for it. Yeah, yeah, we absolutely cannot settle for it. Yeah. Um, I have a question for you. Oh, um, I'm ahead. sorry, Yvonne, a question for you. Um, isn't it like in the Bible, like where they talk about um, see, the, the cleansing, the, uh, you know, the rising from the ashes, like, you know, something, something reborn. And, and, and when you said that, that, that just gave me chills because I'm like, yes, like this needs to be totally destroyed in other in, in order for us to build something new so right. thank you that eli that was beautiful yeah. welcome thank i often you. think of that as we're you know getting into those discussions around systemic racism right and and white supremacy right and kind of going back to those roots and understanding that that's really what's at the foundation of a lot of what is happening in society and so um i think certainly as it relates to these mass shootings, you know, why is it that uh, when we have comparison videos, and you can see this on even on LinkedIn these days, as much as you can see it on YouTube or any other social media platform, that there is a, a distinct difference in the way that Blacks are approached and dealt with versus that of different races and ethnicities. And it's such a stark contrast that you can't help but to inherently 
be anybody with a set of eyes can clearly see the stark differences in how uh, people of color are engaged with, with through law enforcement versus those who, who are different. And um, to say that he, you know, there's still some people who are of the school of thought that systemic racism isn't real or and is not the foundational aspect of this, I, I just it it just still baffles me. Um, to at this point in time that people are still even having that conversation. Um, so to and, that Yvonne, point, just, uh, be before ahead, you go on, I want one quick comment here because you know just and and just you know sparks something for me here and here in Eli Laron here and you know what when when I think about and and discussing of like how to redefine is what I've been calling it for for policing here. Um, when I'm in those rooms having those conversations, what you know, what LeBron and Eli said is really keeps pushing me forward because what I've been making sure to express is that when we don't have equity, when we don't bring this to fairness, burning it down will happen, is inevitable. So that's why we want to work in within the construct now before we get to the point where things are way too far and you're like, hey, we have no other option. Like in this case here, when we're sitting looking at this mountain of evidence and we're like, well, if this don't make it, then we have no other choice. We've all lost hope within the system. And so that's why you know, we wanna take this moment as a, as a time to work, because if we don't do it now, the only answer is, you know, that's, that's inevitable. It, it, what will happen if we don't bring equity? Uh, you know, like uh, there's a uh, there's there's a great West African proverb that I, uh, that I heard yes heard yesterday, um, and if I get it wrong, I, I, I apologize. But it, it goes something to the effect of, if the village does not embrace the uh, the the youngster, the youngster will then burn it down to feel its embrace, mm. to, to feel its warmth. And you know, and again, that kind of goes back to what Eli was saying and. I love what you said, Kenny, as well. It's like, you know, you know, if it, I mean, it's just like what King said. I mean, like riots are the are the voice of the un, of the unheard. And if you if you keep getting smacked down, smacked down, smacked down one day, like no one can. So, you know, it's interesting. Right. So I live in the Bay and yesterday I was in Oakland. And so, you know, I'm, I'm walking around, I'm walking around like downtown Oakland and I see all these places boarded up and I was like, oh, OK, so they pretty much, you know, were like, look, you know, we're about to, we're, uh, we're about to get ready because if this doesn't go the way that it should, then the folks are about to act up. <laughs> so <laughs> it is what it is. That's so true. Yeah, that's so true. And to, you know, I want to keep on this vein and the same topic about the reform efforts, right? And, you know, just even bringing in the dynamic of systemic racism, and that's so foundational in the protect the shield mentality, right? And so I know specifically, Laron and Kenny, you guys have experience in working with uh, law enforcement through, I know, Laron, you've done work in incarceration. So for you guys, you know, help us to understand what you've gleaned in terms of some of the mentality that exists that justifies this lethal use of force. And it feels like every every situation and scenario, right? Like, it, or do you have any indications as to what's really behind that and what's driving that versus employing other tactics such as tasering or shooting to wound? Sure, maybe I can, maybe I can jump in that one first. That's a, that's a great question, Yvonne. And you know, when I think about systemic racism, this is really that, you know, over in, in America, we've had racist views infused into law. And, and, and so once that has happened, it's permeated throughout society in, in all the different systems we have here, whether it be healthcare, whether it be education. The, the most difficult part about policing is that now when it's in this system, um, you can get killed. And, and, and different from you just get a bad education. Um, and so that, and that's where we are dealing with that, that you have that same systemic um, thing that's been permeating our society for 400 plus years now in the hands of police. 
And so when we think about what really happens on the street here, you know, you have an officer, they've been grown up in this culture that says, you know, BIPOC, BIPOC people are less than, and it's in the air, it's in the waters. When they watch TV, when they've gone to school, they've learned these things that we, they, we don't say publicly, but they've been taught by watching television and going to school. And so now they're police officers. And so in the moment they're in the field, they're making decisions. So you have a bunch of individuals making decisions, but when they face with a BIPOC person, they make decisions based off of all these cultural things they've been taught. And that just can end up in a lot of cases of you getting killed. And, and so when we think about the insurrection, when we saw those officers, they were actually acting under the same rules that other cops act under, but because their cultural training were different of how to act with this group of people, you didn't see a bunch of violence against them. And so it, it really is, that is the crux of what's happening. Um, and, 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 and we see it over and over again in, in different municipalities, the same thing happening is because of our culture that we've built in this country. Um, Kenny, I, man, thank you. Uh, so, I just want to give props to Kenny here because he's one of the few folks that I have met that actually says the word culture. So when we talk about how, and, you know, forgive me, like, so I'm a black man, I'm ADOS. I don't know what it's like to be indigenous, Latino, Asian. So I can't speak for the BIPOC experience. I, I can only speak for, uh, speak for being black. Um, I would love to hear uh, what Eli's ex ex experience is. For me, so Kenny said culture. And so we have to understand that the way that Black people are, are viewed in America, the, we've been viewed this, this way since 1619, since we were dropped off um, in Virginia. So we've always been looked at as subhuman, as people who are savage. You know, you have to tame the savages. You have to bring them, what is it? You have to um, culture them. You have to bring them to I'm, I'm sorry, what was, sorry, what was that? Civilize them. Absolutely. Yes, ma'am. You have to civilize them. So as I said earlier, the cops started as slave patrols. The badges look very similar. There's a slave patrol badge and there is a sheriff's badge and, and it looks very similar. So one of the things that we get wrong about that when we talk about racism is that we always think, well, it's, it's ignorance. And we always think that that once a white person is born, he or she starts from a clean slate, right? There's an author by the name of Dr. Tommy Curry. He wrote a book called The Man Not. It's an extremely important book. I hope everyone reads it. And one thing that I learned from Dr. Curry is that there's no, there's, there's no such thing as ignorance to racism. See, many white people are taught, this is how you treat black people, either directly or indirectly from, uh, from societal images, the movies we watch, the, uh, the, uh, the text, we, uh, text we read, um, the shows we, uh, we watch, the, uh, our politics, it's all designed uh, around dehumanizing people who are not white. So when you step into a role such as law enforcement, it's no surprise that law enforcement sees black people in particular as, as, as savages. Um, there was a, oh gosh, uh, there was a young man who was killed recently. Uh, I believe he was 13 year, uh, years old. Mr. Toledo. Mm -hmm. uh, just, um, yes. Um, so Adam Toledo, um, um, I believe he's of, he's of Latino descent. However, if, uh, if you look at the way that they describe him, Adam Toledo, some people described him as a 13 year old man, right? So it's almost like you, you, sort, of, uh, you sort of grow black people, particularly black men into adult males, into people that you are supposed to fear. You know, I'm a six foot two male, dark, uh, dark skin, broad shoulders. So automatically, no matter how, um, no matter how uh, I try to, D de aggressive my uh myself no no matter how I try to water myself down I'm going to be looked at as a threat so we have to look at it there's a pathology here that many whites are taught and so when we look at policing well policing is just another offshoot of of America which is steeped in racism and white supremacy I'm pretty sure Eli she would uh she would 
agree with me on uh, on on that. Again, going uh, going back to we're gonna have to metaphorically burn the system down. We're gonna have to uproot everything. My grandfather, uh, the late great Lavasca Barton, he was a carpenter, and so one thing you know he was also a country boy, and so one thing he would say he would say boy. He, he always started everything off um, um, with boy. And, uh, and, and so it's like, he, he would say, boy, you can't keep uh, grooming a rotten tree. If, if the tree's rotten from the roots, you gotta, uh, you gotta uproot it. And so that's what I think we have as a police department today. Yeah. Eli, I'm curious to hear your experience as an indigenous person um, yeah. and your perspective on police engagement with, with people from, uh, you know, of indigenous peoples and what that experience has been like. Yeah, I'm going to piggyback a little bit on what Laron was sharing in regard to, um, you know, my I'm first generation born off the reservation. Mm-hmm. My mother was born on a reservation in Kashina, Wisconsin, and was forced to go to the boarding school. I know I don't look it, but I was born in 1965. I am going to be 56 this year. And I feel as though, even though I'm first generation born off the reservation, I actually still went to a Catholic grade school. And many of the stories that I've shared that I thought were not real because I thought I had somehow made them up in my head. Because when I came to my parents and said, this is happening my mom was so disconnected from her own experience at the boarding school. And, and look, they forced indigenous folks into boarding schools to take the savage out of them. Mm. The boys were taught how to do hard labor. The, the girls were taught how to cook and clean. It's forced colonization and assimilation. My family is a direct result of the Indian Relocation Act of 1957. I felt like I somehow lost my connection to my culture when I was 15 and my grandmother died, my mom's mom. Back in, I don't know, eight or nine years ago now, one of my cousins and I decided to start interviewing elders in our family. So we went and asked them very specific questions about their experience. And what I discovered is this. I didn't lose lose my culture and heritage when my grandmother died. It was lost way before she was even born. And it was just passed down that way, right? Now, the, the biggest irony is we asked them two questions, very specific questions. One question was, what are you most proud of? My uncle at the time, who's now passed away, said the thing he was most proud of was his service. He was a Vietnam War vet. And that he had so much pride. He had awards on his wall. He had all these things that he was so proud of. And I said, what is your biggest regret? His biggest regret is not knowing his native language, Menominee, never learning Menominee. His grandfather lived with them in a two-bedroom home, which was a cabin without, without plumbing inside. My mom grew up in a cabin without plumbing inside. And his regret, regret was not to know his own native language. And I think to myself, those two things are in such stark contrast. Being proud of this military service, which actually was what stripped you of and me and, and all of us of the culture and who we are as human beings, as individuals. And so, you know, there's just, there's so much, there's so much complexity, this conversation, you know, um, now, of course, I, I have never been to the point, although I, at this, in this particular story, I feel like I, I was about this close to being arrested myself and my significant other at the time. Now I was born assigned female. Okay. I am transgender. Today, my pronouns are he, they, and I identify as a queer trans masculine two spirit of the Menominee nation for a reason. And that's a whole nother talk. We can have another time. But when I was younger and I was trying to fit myself in this world, right. Myself and my significant other, because I've always dated folks of a feminine expression, right? We happened to be at a bar. We were in the bathroom. 
I am much lighter today than I used to be many years ago because I used to spend hours out in the sun in the summer. And that's just what happens for someone like me, right? And we were in the bathroom. I kept getting these weird vibes from one of the women that were in the bathroom. My significant other was white. We walked back out to the table where we were sitting. And I kid you not, security came over and asked me to come outside. I couldn't figure out what was going on right now. I did kiss my significant other in the bathroom. I thought, am I being asked to leave because of that? Did somebody, no, 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 no. I was being accused of having marijuana. They called the cops. They brought me outside and the cops were questioning, wanted to search me. Who am I with? Where did I, where am I coming from? I mean, I couldn't believe it. I was in this weird alternate reality of, are you kidding me? I don't have marijuana on me. (laughs) I I didn't get it. They finally believed me and they let me go, but I was this close to being taken downtown, right? Because some white woman in the bathroom (laughs) didn't like the way we were acting. Now, when I came out as trans in 2015, within two years, I was on a written warning and the complaint was, I was angry is what people kept saying. Eli, the angry trans man. And I'll be just speaking just like I'm speaking now, just with passion. But because of who I am, it's interpreted as harassing, scary. Like one of my coworkers reported me to the director of security because he thought that I was going to go unleash some sort of terror in, on the campus because I was so angry. And, and I, I so I'm like... When I think about these things, this is a problem that has that just continues to get diluted by the justice system that was created specifically to keep us down, period. And, and the rationalizations around it. Oh, I didn't in- intend to harm you when I filed Title IX complaints. I, I didn't intend to harm you when I said that. I don't know these things. Maybe I just need a little training. And then when you give them training, they don't want to sit in the room and they don't care. They don't listen. It's just like, what can we do to shake you awake? People are literally dying. Yeah. That's actually a a great segue into my next question to the panel. So, you know, looking at the landscape of where we've been and where we are right now, what are the opportunities for change? What can police, victims, allies, bystanders do to create change in, in, in the policing industry, I guess you could call it, the complex, right? What do you think, Lalon? And like... um... Eli, incredible stuff. Um, what can so what can we do? It's a really good question. Uh, first off, um, I think that we need to start pretty much filming like almost any interaction that we possibly uh, can uh, can can see with the police. Because if George Floyd's killing was not filmed, I seriously doubt that we would have gotten this far. You know, my. My little brother, he loves this quote from Will Smith, where where Will Smith says, "You know, it's it's not that racism is is gotten worse; it's just it's just now being filmed." So I think that we need to film as uh as much as we possibly can. Uh, I think that we need to um, start being a part of um uh, uh Kenny had said it earlier uh, sort of uh citizen uh, uh, re- uh review boards um or uh or something like that because at this point like all of us have a have a stake in the game all of us need to be involved we need to start pressing politicians on there needs to be concrete police reform we need to stop with this one bad apple thing because obviously it's it's systemic if it's been going on for for decades on decades not only that but it's it's been going on everywhere so it's just not that one bad cap that one bad cop named named jay there's a thousand jays around the world um in uh, in this country in this uh, in this city um and most importantly we need to start listening to people you know when i listened to eli's uh story i did not even be, have the inkling to ask her okay well did you do something uh, well 
are you, well, are you sure? When people tell you their story, you need to believe it, right? Because we're just not saying something to be saying something. You know, you, you can't, you can't gaslight. People have to stop personalizing racism. If something happens to Leron Barton that a white person does, if you are my white friend, ally, don't take it personal as if, oh my God, Leron's railing at all white people. No, listen, I'm telling you about a specific event that happened to me. So uh, citizen review boards, uh, we need to start filming. Um, we need to keep pressure on the politicians and we need to just simply start listening to people See, because I believe that once we start doing those things, then, uh, then things can change. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> Laron, I mean, just I, I'll, I'll just follow up with that, with the listening. Um, and, and that is true. And, and, you know, I've had numerous discussion with my, you know, white colleagues about George Floyd and how everyone felt about the incident and then started just talking about stories. And my wife and I were on a panel um, at, 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 in Hastings, New York, and just talking to them about some of our experiences. And people were blown away that, uh, you know, really that they were like, wow, we didn't think, you know, someone like you would, would still have these negative interactions. And what, what you meant was really like in the class that you're in. Mm -hmm. and, 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 but what we reminded them that we are still black and these can happen to anyone. And, and, and really just shedding light and telling these stories. And I think, you know, when I talk to my, my, my colleagues, what they're seeing is that in their entire life, they've never seen this happen, where, you know, they've had numerous interactions with police, they have family members that are, you know, in, in law enforcement, and that's not how the interactions go. So it makes it tough for them. And that's why you get that question saying, um, are you sure Did they really do something wrong? Because in their mind, the only time police would take an action like that is when someone is doing something wrong because from their point of view, they've never seen anything like that ever happen. They've only heard your one story. And so that's just something to, to realize that's there. Um, what can we do now? And, and we are here at Stanford working on a community review board. And, and that's not the answer to everything, but it is a step in the right direction. And in that direction, that we're looking for is that the community has involvement in what police do. Instead of the only time we talk to them is when something is like a flashbang and there's a big issue and you know there's been a death or, or something of that nature is the only time we have a conversation. We wanna have a formalized structure to say, well, this is how we can deal with complaints. This is how we would deal with policies. And, and we think about a lot of things we see is policy driven. And, and if you have, you know, public insight into the policies, especially in like rules of engagement, you know, as a community, we have values and the police department may have separate values. We want to bring those values together. The, the policing, the police department should reflect community values. And so, so our values are what should lead. And so in our values, you know, when there's a, you know, situation, you have someone with a gun, you don't, we're not saying kill the person. We're saying, okay, let's defuse. We have different ways of looking at things. And if we can have those values be the same values that law enforcement has, that's when we can start to have progress. So this, you know, our, our movement here is to get the structure around to say, we will have a voice into what police do and how they do what they do. And then also, you know, it would it was also double as a forum to say, well, we have some complaints, maybe you have an independent person, you know, look at some of those. So you have, you know, some kind of balance. So it's not the answer of everything, but it's really a start to say, you know, if you think at a high level, what can you change? It's really the rules. And, and I really compare it to, if you look at Georgia, after the voting and after the Georgia swung blue, we see a mad rush to change the rules, a mad rush. And so we wanna also do the same thing in policing to say, hey, we wanna rush to change the rules here because we see something that we don't like. And I think if we do that, that will we'll start to make a dramatic shift in how police engage with people. Yeah, and, I, and I'll just piggyback on that real quick and just say that there's, there's this approach to go to the police and do things as a community and as people living in the community and what we uh, need and want from this 
group that is set up to protect, right? But I think that there's also a huge need for, for these quote unquote good cops to actually be able to speak out and say, this is not okay. And that their jobs don't then become on the line. Because if there are that many good cops out there, then we can, we can squelch this pretty quickly if we give them the ability and the safety to share what they've seen, what they've felt, what they've heard, and what they've also been victims to themselves in that system, right? So there's this really incredible speech. I'll just share a little bit. John Trudell, a Native American human being who is a poet and author, musician, and an advocate, started the Indian, uh, the uh, AIM movement, uh, American Indian movement back in the 70s. But he gave this really powerful speech about power. If you get a chance to look that up, I would strongly recommend it. The other thing that he talked about was how they've mined our minds. And we've all been sharing a little bit about this. What has happened is the oppressor teaches us to oppress ourselves. I think what's happening with younger communities is they're going, wait a minute, this isn't okay. Like we've tried to be pushing back, you know, but we've been trying to play under their rules. And the minute that we start to say no, uh, one of my uh, favorite quotes, um, it's from a, I believe it's a, from a Maya Angelou poem that talks about master's tools cannot dismantle master's house. So we can't approach and use the same tools to dismantle the structural issues and the systemic issues using those same tools. We need to transform that environment and we need to look at it from a completely different perspective because we are going to continue to get more of the same. We are going to continue to let these bad cops off because we let them quit. We give them the option to quit and go work someplace else and then line up and rack up a bunch of problems in the new place. And we don't ever address the issue. Mm. And so that's, I mean, and we need more people who like us, who believe in this change to actually run for local political offices and to fill those seats. I mean, in Omaha, Nebraska, in the Nebraska legislature, we have so many people on the, on the conservative side. It is almost impossible to make change happen, to have change happen, because they're not listening to the people. They're not listening to their constituents. They're only listening to the ones that agree with them. That's very true. Such a great points there made, Eli. Um, Kenny, I know that at one point you were actually, because I remember we had some conversations back close to the time when, when George Floyd was murdered about developing some type of a registry, right? They have sex offender registries and for pedophiles and those who have committed uh, sexual crimes against others. Is there something in the conversations that you're having um, on police reform? Is there any furthering on that discussion of an actual registry system where the bad apples actually can't jump from job to job, station to station, that their track record kind of follows them? And so it's very clearly a pattern um, of behavior that needs to be addressed. Yeah, and 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 two two things I want to say, but but first to to answer that is is the George Floyd Accountability Bill. That's one of the provisions that they would have a national registry, um, and so that that would hopefully um, start to slow down. You know, because right now you can't get access to their records, so you could do something bad here in Connecticut, move to Atlanta, and just get a job. And, and we all know, I spent time in corporate America. If I tried to do this, they would call, where's your reference? And, mm -hmm. and, 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 but they, they don't have to, you know, give a reference and, and you can't call and you can't ask. So, I mean, it, it, it was a, a, a tough way to really get rid of those bad apples um, that, that everyone, you know, speaks of. And, and to me, um, you know, the real big answer is make a good system. Bad apples can't survive if we make a good system. And, and as Eli was kind of touching on there to say, you know, how do we get them out? If we make the system better, then it just roots them out because people are overall trying to be better within the system. So you have good cops in there that would say, hey, that's the wrong. I pointed out from the inside. 
But what we've been seeing and what Eli was, was you know, alluding at is that blue wall of silence is that, you know, no one would tell. And that's what made one thing made this case unique. You actually had the chief of police testifying against an officer. And I, I tried to look that up. I think I found like one case <laughs> of that happening before actually the chief um, testifying against, um, you know, an officer under, you know, his, his or her command. But, you know, it, that was unprecedented. So, so, you know, which made this case even more unique. But we want that culture to be, you know, the same thing they tell us. If you see something, say something. We, we kind of want the same thing for the cops to do. You see something, you say something. And we wanted to make that a, a culture where we can do that. Um, right now, that culture isn't there. Um, one of the, the, the stakeholders that, that don't allow that culture is the police unions. Um, they're powerful, they're, they're big, um, they, they wield power, they, 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 especially in your local jurisdictions, um, you know, influence uh, on the electoral process. So usually no one wants to go against them. And, and their objective is just to protect officers at all costs. So I look at it as a double whammy. I'm, I'm, I'm a taxpayer, I'm paying for the officers and then they're using that money to pay the union. And now I got all these groups coming back to oppress me. So that's a, a, a terrible way for my dollar to leave my, my pocket and return to me. So that's not a great great return at all. So that's why we want here to say in this community review board from this angle, we want a better return on our dollar. And, and, and we wanna make sure that, that our dollars aren't coming back to oppress us. Absolutely. LeBron, did you have some last thoughts before we get into Q&A? Because we have quite a few questions in the chat. Uh, yes, uh, yes, ma'am. Uh, I, I would say so. I believe in in defunding the police. I, I think that a lot of the funds that we are that, that we are directing to the police can be used to uh, for mental health, uh, for uh, mental health uh, awareness, uh, as well as as well as mental health care. They could be used for schools. They could be used for drug for drug treatment program, pro programs. Look, here's the thing. If we fix the environment then we won't need so many police to come in and to respond to crimes with, uh, within, the, uh, within the environment. We, have, we can't put a scab on a gunshot wound. I'm, I'm sorry, a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound. We have to fix what is creating these, uh, these problems that actually leads to the police that are coming. So this is why the defund the police movement for me is so important. And just the fact that there's so many community services that could be doing so much better and so much good, but unfortunately, uh, the monies are going to the cops. So, yeah. Yeah. So um, I do have a question, but Lauren, we'll have to. I'm going to have to table that now about the whole concept of defund the police. Um, but I want to get to some of the questions that have been asked here in chat. Um, someone's. Uh, had brought up the point about uh, abolition. So what is really the difference between reform and abolition? Maybe I'll jump into that one. Um, <clears throat> now, you know, I, I'm probably, I probably don't sit in the, the, the fund camp, but I get where LaRon is, is, is coming from because, you know, funds that would be spent better, could be spent better to better the environment. And mm -hmm. why, I, why I say that as well is that there is enough money here. I mean, one F-18 costs about anywhere between 30 to $50 million. That's one. And so we have fleets of these things. And so if we have fleets of, you know, unimaginable costs, if you ever go outside of a military base and you see a bunch of those jets go over, that's that right there, that one air show, you know, costs so much money. If we can figure that out as a nation, how to pull these resources together to get that aircraft carrier, I can't imagine what that costs. <laughs> and, and we can, you know, you know, fuel all these jets and, and do that. We can figure out how to get, you know, some more money for the education system to fix all these other environmental problems. So in America, we really don't have a cash shortage problem. We, we, we hear that image here and, and we hear things in the news, but we don't have that problem. And that's me putting my CPA hat on. That is not the issue. It's just where we choose to spend the money. That's, that's the problem. We would spend more per person to send a child to prison than to educate them in the first place. It's, and, and why do we do that? 
that's that's where we need to kind of shift. And so so I'm not so abolition it, to me is like I mean I, there was a Gallup poll I think it was uh, July 2020 and it asked by race you know how much do you do you want more time with cops less time and even and so for blacks it was about 61% said I want to keep it like it is whites is about 71%. So it wasn't where, you know, most blacks were saying, I want less time with police. I don't want police at all. We understand the value of what they do. How they end up engaging with black people in particular is the problem. It, it, it is not that they're there, it's that how they fit into this construct of race here. They are oppressing us and we want to change that oppression. And so that's where the conversation has to be to say, let's not pretend. And when you get into conversation in these rooms, we wanna pretend like it's not there, like it's equal, like it happens to everyone. And we have a new policy and we trained someone yesterday and now it won't happen again. No, it will happen again because it's infused in our culture. And until we change that, and we do, as, as LeBron suggested, we, we spend money in, on education and to, to better uh, uh, you know, definitely groups that have been underserved. Those are the ways to, to, to battle all of this. Um, you know, we, can try to, we can try to have more rules, but you really can't legislate integrity. And so, so we're trying to do that. And we're saying, I'll hand these cops 20 more rules and then they'll act better. Well, that's, you know, that's just another pair of rules that they'll figure out ways to still do things that they shouldn't. We need to change the whole culture and environment around it. There's also the, the when we speak about systemic racism and systems of oppression, we have to look at the, the school to prison pipeline. That is a very, very real experience for people of color because they're earmarked. I mean, some of these things that I've read as part of a, I was part of a group of folks that was working with within our local school system in regard to um, having uh, retired police officers be on, on campuses, on these public school campuses, right? And being paid to be there to police these schools, but had, had a system of rules. And we were talking about how can we change these things? Because there are still issues that are happening, right? Well, what's happening is, is you have to think about the ways in which people are talking about second graders or first graders. And, and if there is a black boy who is acting out the words that they're using to describe his actions are unbelievable. And so it starts that young and we have to be aware of that's why the reallocation of funds makes a ton of sense because then you're looking at, hey, let's look at all these school systems. Where's the issues within these school systems, right? Well, you know what? In some of these school systems, it's predominantly white teachers. And they're white teachers who don't have a clue what some of these young kids are facing at home. And the, the, the being trauma informed, I mean, there just is work upon work, the complexities, the intersectionalities, all of these things that need to be unpacked. But like Laron says, and one of my favorite things to talk about is, look, we can pull a weed, right? We can pull it. But unless you're willing to get down on your knees, gloves on, digging in the dirt to really pull those roots out and get rid of that, you can't. I, I, you cannot put a, a Band-Aid on a gaping wound. Laron, you're exactly right. And, and we have to take the time to allow. Sometimes it need, just needs air, right? It just needs air. And these problems within the police system aren't even getting air, right? And then what happens? I can't breathe. To me, that's the connection that I make. George Floyd is dead because the air that is lacking within the system. You know what? Um, well, one thing like that I want to uh, that that I want to piggyback on what um, on what Eli said. You know, we need to address the environment that made George Floyd think that he needed to pass a a counterfeit bill. See again, like when it's like if you have a if if you have pneumonia right you buying robitussin is not going to resolve the pneumonia the cops that's the that's the robitussin but 
the real issue is why is George Floyd feeling like that he has to resort to this sort of petty crime to be able to survive? That's the real thing. So, Eli, I'm right there with you. We uh, we uh, we need to defund this uh, this system. We need to reallocate resources. Otherwise, this problem is going to keep happening. This is not only a problem with the police, but this is a problem with the environment. So, yeah, just one. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a great great point there. And 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 you think about that same situation with the twenty dollar bill. You know what? You know he was there with a the twenty dollar bill. And what we also want to change is the response. The officers came. I mean, this is this is not one of the critical crimes here. There there are only eight eight crimes that are reported to the federal database and counterfeit bill is not one of them. And so why did they respond in such a manner when you know this was a counterfeit bill? This could have been something that was not an offense that was arrestable. This is just could have been a ticketed offense. Um, and so that's where when we get to changing the rules, we would change that rule to say, hey, if this is not one of those serious crimes, there are only eight, if this is not one of them, then this is not where you bring the whole force to arrest and 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 you know over because we look at the situation, what was happening? It was one twenty dollar bill that he may not even have been aware that was even counterfeit, and 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 so you know if you think about the story, he didn't run out the store and leave. He's sitting out in the car chilling. If you know you're passing counterfeit money, you're ready to go. Um, but it 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 is it's but they reacted. They didn't approach him in a manner like, hey, let's discuss the situation. The manner was let's arrest. And so that's in our policy and in how we engage. And, and, and that's what we definitely need to change. Yeah, I remember, you know, when the story first came out and they talked about that. And I was like, you took this man from the earth for a counterfeit $20 bill. The cost, the cost, that $20 bill, fake $20 bill could not have possibly been worth his life and the value that that had to so many people. And then when you think about the economics of that, of what they ended up pay, having to pay the family for the lawsuit, right? And so you took $20 and look at just, when you think about the reaction of the masses and all of the damage done to properties mm -hmm. through the demonstrations. And I mean, it's just, and you go keep going back to it was a fake $20 bill. But this yeah. is the point where we're at in society, is it not? That, that that one thing could spark all of this. Um, and so I, I have so many thoughts. I have so many feelings on this topic. Obviously, it's, it's, it's right on the surface for many of us. Um, but I know that we want to be cognizant of people's times. Um, I dare say if we need to have a part two of this, I don't know if you guys are game for it, but I think our audience just has yeah. a ton of questions. Is that thumbs up? Is yeah. that a yes? You guys Let's can come up you. Is that an absolutely? Okay. Let's do it. I got to tell you, I had a laundry list of questions that I couldn't even get to. Like we didn't even fully get into the whole uh, discussion on defund the police and, and the languaging and all of that. And we could talk about languaging and policing and yeah, there, there's just a lot there. Um, so I would love it if you guys would be willing to come back. We'll get it on the schedule in very close proximity. Yes, to this. Um, I know that we had about 26 people on today, and I'm sure uh, people will come back for part two. Um, I want to thank Laron Barton, Kenny Green, and Eli Rigatuso for their um, participation today, for dropping so many gems of knowledge, and for inspiring change. And so if you are committed to that, I really hope that you will come back and join us again. Um, thank you for a great conversation and insights. Um, and uh, check us out on LinkedIn, hashtag join lead. Um, again, thank you so much, Laron, Kenny, Eli, thank you. my uh, PIC, oh, thank you. Chris Lynn, um, who's always here. And uh, we will definitely let you guys know when we're going to have part two of uh, reimagining reform uh, police violence across America. Thank you everyone for participating. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you. Thanks.
Thank you again for tuning into this special episode on the Leading People First podcast. We hope you can join us next time live as we come together to learn, activate, and empower to make a difference in the world. Again, we meet every Thursday at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 4.30 p.m. Pacific. You can find the group and next event on LinkedIn. If you'd like more information, feel free to reach out to me directly. All of the group information, as well as my own, is in the show notes. Don't forget to click that subscribe button to hear more of our conversations moving forward and share this episode. We're so excited that you've joined us in this movement. Let's go out into the world and lead together. Stay awesome.